Lord, there truly is nothing in this world that compares to knowing you. I think of the Apostle Paul's words 2,000 years ago when he said, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Lord, it's so easy for us to get caught up in so many other things, Lord, that we think bring us a sense of happiness, a sense of purpose, a sense of joy, but Lord, those things will ultimately let us down if we put our full sense of, of security and hope and purpose in those things. But we know that Jesus will never let us down. And Lord, today as we come to Scripture and come to the final chapter of the book of Nehemiah, I pray that you will help us see with clarity and with conviction how and why we ought to follow you throughout our lives. How, how we can not fall astray on this path of following you, but how we can stay strong with you, stay the course of following you every day of our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we are finishing up with our study of the book of Nehemiah. Over the last few months, it's been really a bit of a whirlwind tour of significant events that took place in Jerusalem about 2,500 years ago. We've seen how there was significant physical change to the city. The city wall, which had been broken down for 140 years, was now rebuilt as Nehemiah led the people of Jerusalem to come together and to rebuild this wall. We see that there is significant economic and political change as Nehemiah worked to install healthier leadership in the city. He worked to confront corruption that was oppressing the people. He worked in order to make Jerusalem overall just a better place to live. We see also that, that there was significant spiritual revamping that was taking place as well. There was a revival that broke out in Jerusalem and people were wholeheartedly turning back to God. And so it was a very exciting time and God used Nehemiah in amazing ways as a catalyst there. Nehemiah, as we have seen throughout the study, was a great leader. He loved God very deeply. He was passionate about building God's kingdom. And God did work through him in amazing ways. Last week in Nehemiah chapter 12, we saw the celebration that the people in Jerusalem were experiencing as they thanked God for all that he had done in their midst in the previous months. We saw, for instance, the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. If you were outside Jerusalem, out in the countryside, when they were celebrating all that God had done, you would hear the joyous celebration. God had done great things in their midst. And today we are wrapping up the book with Nehemiah 13. We're going to see here, it's very important that we never get complacent, thinking that what we are experiencing now is good enough. Or that if things are going really well here in the present, whether it's in our spiritual lives or in our family lives or in our job, if things are going well, that they're always going to continue on that same path without change. Because we know life is always changing. Circumstances are always changing. And we can never get complacent. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah 13. We should never get complacent. We should never say, well, this is good enough. Well, this, we, we have things going well now, and so they'll always be going well. Because we never quite know. There's a man named Max Dupree. He was uh, the CEO of a Fortune 500 company named Herman Miller for many years. He's a Christian man, very committed in his faith, very active in Christian uh, ministries. And also, he has written many books on leadership. And through the years, he's been asked to speak in a variety of venues on the topic of leadership. And one of those times, someone asked him during a Q&A session, Max, when you look at your life, what would you say is the greatest difficulty that you have had to address on a personal level? 
I mean, it's, it's a pretty deep probing type of question. And here's the response that Max Dupree said. You know what? The greatest thing that I've had to address is intercepting entropy. You may hear that. What does that mean to intercept entropy? Well, entropy is a term that comes from physics. It refers to the second law of thermodynamics and talks about the usage of energy. Basically, what it says is that left to itself, pretty much anything is going to move in the direction of chaos and disorder and less and less usable energy. That is, unless there's something that comes in from the outside to intentionally increase the level of energy in order there. I mean, it's kind of this abstract concept, but one aspect of it, one ramification, is that our universe is essentially winding down over time. In our universe, there's less and less usable energy all the time. But even on a more uh, everyday type of level, we see this dynamic of entropy playing out. For instance, if you go buy a car somewhere, a new car, the moment you drive it off that dealer's lot, there are a couple things that are going to happen. One, we all know it's going to immediately depreciate when you, in value when you drive it off the lot. One of the other things is that the clock is ticking on the life of that car. We all know the car is not always going to run as well as it does on that day you drive it off the lot. There are going to be times where it needs repairs, where it needs maintenance, and there will probably come a time sometime when it's no longer going to be running at all. It's just the reality of vehicles. Or think about if you are in good shape today. If you do absolutely nothing to maintain your physical conditioning in the weeks and months to come, it's not going to be very long before you're out of shape. It's just the way things are. Uh, think about your house. If your house is clean today, you're going to have to keep cleaning that house in order to keep it clean, especially if you have children, because children somehow manage to accelerate the rate of chaos and disorder in a the house. They, they are like these little entropy agents, right, in your midst. And so you have to keep cleaning your house if you want it to stay clean. It's the same thing in our spiritual lives. That even if things are going really well right now for walking closely with God, feeling very passionate about him, seeing him work in and through us, we have to maintain an intentional focus on continuing to grow and following Christ, or else we will slowly fade away. That law of entropy just applies really across the board in so many different ways. And one of the ramifications of this is that idea of decreasing energy. That if we aren't careful, as we live in a world of challenges and heartache, um, where entropy is at play, our energy level to really invest ourselves in moving forward decreases. It's easy to just kind of settle for mediocrity rather than really pressing ahead for all that God's calling us to. So that's why Max Dupree said, I have to constantly work to intercept entropy, to keep that chaos and disorder and decreasing energy level from reigning supreme in his life and in his work and in his ministry. It's the same thing for us. We're going to see that really lived out here in Nehemiah chapter 13. The passage we're looking at today took place quite a few years after the rest of the book that we've been studying so far. Look with me to verses 6 and 7, and we'll see about this. Nehemiah writes, But while I was, all this was going on, now we're going to describe in a few minutes what was going on, he said, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. So there's reference here to the 32nd year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. 
Back in chapter 1, we saw that the beginning of the rebuilding of the wall took place in the 20th year of the king. So what this means is that Nehemiah had served in Jerusalem for 12 years. After 12 years, his leave of absence, because he had been a, a servant of the king, and he had to get special permission to leave and go to Jerusalem to help rebuild the city, his leave of absence was done. He had to return to serving the king in the king's palace. So in 433 B.C., I mean, he went to Jerusalem in 445 B.C. Now in 433 B.C., he's going back to the king's palace. And he's there for a number of years. We don't know exactly how long, probably at least eight or ten years. And he gets word that there are some problems going on in Jerusalem. And so he asks for the king permission again to go back and check on what's going on. And what he finds when he gets there is that there have been a lot of spiritual compromises along the way. We're going to look at some of these spiritual compromises among the people of Jerusalem that Nehemiah had to address. One of the first things that he talks about is that the temple had been defiled by Tobiah. Now, if you've been here throughout this series, you probably recognize that name, Tobiah. Tobiah was uh, a main nemesis of Nehemiah who really, he was just a nasty guy. Um, I mean, he spread nasty rumors about Nehemiah. He... He tried to discourage the workers from finishing the wall. He tried to carry out an assassination plot against Nehemiah. Now listen to where Tobiah is at this point. Picking up in verse 4, it says, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided Tobiah with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles. So what we see here is that a room in the temple, there were a lot of storage rooms there, a room had been provided for Tobiah, who had a lot of connections among the upper class in Jerusalem, for him to live there. Picking up in the middle of verse 7, Nehemiah writes, Here, when he returned to Jerusalem, he says, I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. So we see that, that Tobiah, I mean, he wasn't kept out of, out of Jerusalem at that point, even though he'd been such a hindrance and menace earlier. Instead, he's welcomed right back in. And the bigger problem wasn't, or one of the big problems wasn't just that he had been an opponent of Nehemiah, but he wasn't even the Jewish person. And so he really had no business there in the Jewish temple, especially living there. And I think about it, if I were Nehemiah, my blood probably would have been boiling at that point. And apparently his was as well, and with good reason. And so he literally took Tobiah's stuff and threw it out into the streets and said, Tobiah, you're no longer welcome here. I think this is a great picture of how God's people should never tolerate a divisive spirit among them. So, so Nehemiah had to address this issue. He also had to address an issue of how people were no longer giving financially to support God's ministry. Look with me to verse 10. Nehemiah said, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for their services had gone back to their own fields. So I, so I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. 
So there was a temple there in Jerusalem. It was the centerpiece of Jewish worship. And God had designed that there would be priests and these people called Levites who would really supervise everything that goes on in the temple. They would preach God's word. They would keep the people of Jerusalem walking closely with God. And Nehemiah had to jumpstart the practice of tithing. Tithing was the practice that God had instituted originally uh, where people would give 10% of all their income to support the work of the temple and the work of the people who served in the temple in order to keep God a priority in that country. Nehemiah, uh, years earlier when he'd been in Jerusalem, had to jumpstart the process of tithing because people had stopped. They said, okay, we'll get back on that practice again. But then after Nehemiah left Jerusalem, you know, money got tight. And as happens oftentimes, giving to God kind of fell by the wayside for these people. Now, the outcome here was that the people who were serving in the temple could no longer afford to be there. So we see that many of them had gone back to their own fields, meaning they, they had to work to support themselves rather than ministering to help people grow, grow closer to God. And Nehemiah said, you know what? This isn't how it should be. You need to be tithing again in order to support God's ministry to help the people grow closer to God. Now, in our, in our time today, we don't have the Jewish temple any longer. It doesn't exist, and it's not directly relevant to our worship of God today. But we do have churches, and I think there's an analogous situation between supporting the work of God in the temple then with the work of God through churches today, because churches are very helpful today for pointing people to God and keeping people walking with God. And churches need financial support to keep going. It's just a reality. I mean, I think about how all of our contributions, I mean, Shelley and I are part of the congregation too. We also contribute to the well-being of what's going on here. But without the contrib- our contributions to support the work of the church, Pastor David and I could not be here full-time. Without contributions to support the work of the church, we couldn't support Carissa in leading the worship team. We wouldn't be able to pay for the administrative and, cust- and custodial needs for the church. I think on, on days when it's cold outside, we probably all appreciate the warmth of the heat in here. But finances are needed to pay the heat bill. I think about the ministries that we have as a church. I mean, we support missionaries overseas. We give over $30,000 a year to support missionaries to take the gospel to the far reaches of the world. That takes money. Again, the ministries. For instance, Vacation Bible School. Um, I mean, this last year we had, I think, 86 children at VBS majority of whom were from outside the church. When I got here to the church, children were charged money to be a part of VBS. One of our mentalities here is that we want to charge people, we don't really want to charge people um, for being involved in most of the church's ministries. So one of the things that I did that first year was say, no, we're not going to charge people anymore to attend VBS because we want it to really be an outreach to people who don't attend church or who aren't Christians. We don't want to put up a barrier or make it look like the church is hungry for money. But then who begins to foot the bill for VBS? Well, it's us together as a church. Same with other ministries, Sunday morning classes, uh, middle school and high school ministries throughout the week. It requires money. And so the contributions that we all make really do support the ministry and the well-being of God's work through this church. I mean, so, so it's important that we do that. But back then, we see that people were getting kind of slack in their giving to God's work. And so God's ministry is fading there in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah had to confront that. He also recognized that the people stopped honoring the Sabbath. 
Pick up with me in verse 15. It says, In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you were doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same thing, so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon the city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. And then it goes on after that where Nehemiah takes some practical action steps to help the people observe the Sabbath. You may be wondering, okay, what's the significance of the Sabbath here? Well, part of it can be traced back to what we know as the Ten Commandments. Back in Exodus 20, one of the commandments says this. It says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And so, so, so the Sabbath was part of the weekly rhythm built into the life of Israel to help them focus on God. It said, okay, six days of the week, you can work. That's a good thing. But the seventh day, set it aside. Don't do any work. Then focus more on God during that day. It was just a part of the rhythm to keep them focused on God. And today we oftentimes don't focus as much on that rhythm of the Sabbath, but we still have other rhythms in our life that help us walk with God. I think of the rhythm of reading our Bibles on a regular basis. It's a very important thing to keep us walking closely with God. It's a healthy rhythm. A rhythm of setting aside time for prayer on a regular basis. A rhythm of being involved in, in activities with the church family. These are rhythms that don't necessarily guarantee that we're growing spiritually. But I do promise you that if you are currently engaged in those rhythms, and then you decide to stop for a period of time, that you are slowly probably going to be fading away from God if you stop those rhythms that are designed to help you focus on Him. So Nehemiah had to address this with the people as well. And finally, he had to address that some people there were intermarrying with pagan cultures. Look with me to verse 23. It says, Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Now, you may think that sounds kind of extreme. You kind of have to understand that, that wasn't that uncommon in that culture. It really shows the seriousness with which Nehemiah viewed the sin that they were committing. He said, I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? Now, I think this takes a little bit of explanation because what's going on here is not racism. It's not that there's anything inherently wrong with marrying someone from a different culture. The issue here is that with these different cultures, 
came worship of different gods. And we need to understand that missionary dating doesn't work. You may wonder, okay, what's missionary dating? Missionary dating is when someone who is committed and devoted to God marries someone else who is not or dates someone else who is not with the hope that, they will, that the Christian will be strong enough to influence the other person to come to be fully devoted to Christ. That's missionary dating. It's not biblical, nor does it usually work. Usually it works the opposite direction that's desired, where the Christian, thinking they can draw the non-Christian closer to Christ, actually that Christian is usually one who ends up pulling away from Christ more. There are exceptions to that, but more than often, it's the Christian who ends up falling away from God. I've seen it time and time again, and it's really sad. And so that's what this is getting to, is that these Israelites... They were, they were marrying people from other cultures who worshipped other gods. And these people, just like King Solomon as an example, were turning away from God to worship other deities. They aren't really deities in the first place. So Nehemiah had to confront a lot of issues when he got back to Jerusalem. I mean, he poured his blood, sweat, and tears into Jerusalem for 12 years to build it up. And over the subsequent years, they turned back away from God. And I think it's relevant to ask, okay, how could this happen? How do they get here in this place of spiritual compromise? Well, first of all, let me point out what didn't happen. They didn't just sit down one day and say, okay, we're going to turn away from God. We're going to go our own way. No, I don't think they, they really planned to stray from God. Instead, it was simply a long, gradual process of compromise. They probably started out with small compromises that barely anyone noticed. And then the small compromise grew into a little bit of a bigger one until you eventually get something pretty significant where they have actually strayed a long way from where God is calling them. But because it was such a gradual, slow process, they never even realized how far away they were getting from God. That's a process that we are all prone to as well, of compromises building up over time and leading us to a place that we never should be and probably never wanted to be. It's that process of entropy, the, the, the chaos and disorder and lack of energy and applying ourselves to the things that really matter. When in reality, we need to be focused on pursuing God and his calling wholeheartedly. So today, as we close out the book of Nehemiah, I want to give us four keys to help us stay the course in following God and making him known to those around us. Four keys that really summarize the whole book and are just good to apply in general in our lives. One key is that we need to define the direction. It's, it's impossible to stay the course if we haven't, haven't defined what course we're trying to stay on. You have to figure out what's your goal, what's your mission, where are you headed? And you could call it by a number of different names. I mean, you could say it's our direction, it's our goal, it's our mission. The name doesn't matter nearly as much as that you have clarified it and that you are passionate about living it out. So you can have something that sounds really nice and have it up on your wall as your personal mission statement. But if you aren't passionate about it, you're not going to do it. We as a church have a mission statement. I, I will bet that there are maybe one or two of us in this room who can quote the mission statement. It's just reality. It's a longer statement. Um, I know I can quote it. I wouldn't be surprised if none of you can. It wouldn't surprise me at all. And that's all right because it's longer. But we have worked recently to define more of a concise mission statement that is much easier to remember that can really serve as our guiding north star in where we are going. And here, here it is. It's that we are seeking to make disciples 
through up-and-out relationships. That's our mission as a church, making disciples through up-and-out relationships. It incorporates the up-and-out triangle, which is key uh, to what we are all about here. But bottom line, it's making disciples. Now, you may be thinking, hey, how come I've never heard of that before? If you're thinking that, that's fine. Because it doesn't surprise me. Because this, the, the wording in the statement is hot off the presses. I mean, this is the first place publicly it's been said at all. Um, but we really want to clarify in a memorable way what we're trying to do. We're trying to make disciples through these relationships with God, the up, through relationships with other Christians, the in, and through relationships with the surrounding world, the out, with the gospel right there in the center. That's what our mission is. And I want to challenge you on a personal level as well that we all need to understand what our personal mission, our personal direction is as well. Because if we don't understand where we're going and why we're going there, odds are good we're not going to be able to stay the course of where we really want to be in the first place. So we need to define the direction, but we need more than just that. We also need intentionality. You could say intentionality, intentionality, intentionality. We need to be intentional in actually pursuing that direction. I think the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, talking about his ministry and his devotion and intentionality in that ministry, he said, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So you see Paul's intentionality there. He's saying, I have this goal. I want to make Christ known to others. God's called me to that. And I'm going to do everything I can. I'm not going to let there be any hindrance here. I'm going to run this race with perseverance. He's going to set out priorities in his life that enable him to intentionally fulfill that calling. It's all about priorities. It's intentionally determining what do we need to do to fulfill the mission or the goal that we have. And those priorities need to be lived out in practical ways in our relationships, in our schedules, in our finances. And if we're able to intentionally live out those priorities that, that help us pursue that ultimate goal, it's going to take us a long way down the path towards staying the course to where God's calling us. A third important step is welcoming accountability. Now, many, many people get kind of queasy or scared uh, when they hear the term accountability. Um, but it's kind of ironic because in reality, we're all going to be held accountable by God someday. And so to me, it makes sense that we are willing to, to invest in relationships, trusting, loving relationships, where we, people will be able to help hold us accountable here and now to help us prepare for being accountable to God one day. And many times accountability is not nearly as scary as it sounds. I think, for instance, of a group of, of three of us guys back when I was in high school. We were in pre-calculus class. Um, I was a senior in high school. We were all seniors. And we had a bad case of senioritis where if you don't know what senioritis is, it's when your graduation is coming soon and you are ready to be done. You don't care about any homework. You're ready just to be done. But we, we were in this pre-calculus class, and it didn't come super easy to any of us. Um, and so what we ended up doing is the three of us would get together one night a week at one of the guys' houses to do the homework together. 
It was a way to keep us motivated. It was also a great help for when one of us was struggling with something that the others could help explain it. But that was essentially accountability. We didn't call it accountability, but it, it was accountability just to get together, to call each other up, say, hey, let's get together this time, this night, this house, and then to work together on the homework. If one of us started slacking and, and thinking, you know what, I don't feel like doing the homework, the other would say, come on, let, let's get it done. We, we can do it together here. Um, that's accountability. I think that's a great picture of how accountability should function among Christians. It's a group of people who are having fun together, loving each other, trusting each other, and going in the same direction, just helping bring one another along in the journey. If accountability had been in place and been followed through on in Jerusalem, Nehemiah wouldn't have had to go in there in Nehemiah 13 to clean house. And all the pieces were in place there. You had the spiritual leaders. You already had in Nehemiah 10, the people in Jerusalem put into writing their goals and their means. They were highly intentional, highly clear on, their, on defining their direction. The very same things that they put into writing in Nehemiah 10 are the same things that Nehemiah is confronting them on in Nehemiah 13. Because for some reason or another, the accountability failed along the process. And Nehemiah had to come in and clean house in order to call people back to God. So we need to welcome accountability to help us stay faithful to God's calling in our lives. And finally, we need to pray for the Holy Spirit's power. Because all the great plans and all the great leadership and all the great mission statements and whatever, those things are powerless without the Holy Spirit's work to cause growth in us as individuals or us as a church. Because we all have this... this, this uh, aspect of entropy, chaos working inside of us. It's called our sinful nature that's constantly working to pull us away from God. And we need the Holy Spirit to wage war against that sinful nature to help us stay the course and follow him, whether it's as individuals or as the church. And that actually leads to our series next week that begins next week. It's called The Fall. It's a three-week series. It's on Genesis chapter 3 leading up to, um, leading up to Easter. And it's really an, an intriguing topic to dig into Genesis chapter 3 and watch the progression of how sin works out in our lives. I mean, it, it is really intriguing. I won't like, spill the beans on any more of that, but I've been looking at, forward to this series, actually trying to figure out a place to plug in for a couple of years now. Um, you know, there are certain times where it's better than other times to do series on sin. And I said, what better time than leading up to Easter? Because then on Easter you can celebrate that Jesus is victorious over sin. But I encourage you to come back next week because we're going to start a very intriguing series on Genesis chapter 3. But even when we talk about Jesus' victory over sin, we even see hints of that in Nehemiah 13. We need the gospel. I mean, that's one more key that we need in staying the course. We need to focus on the gospel. Nehemiah is confronting people who have given in the sin over and over and over. We need a Savior who can overcome sin once and for all. We need a Savior who not only defeats sin and reconciles us with God, but is able to give us a new heart from the inside out, a heart for loving and obeying God rather than just conforming to his ways out of, out of a sense of obligation. We need a Savior who can give us a sense of new life, of new direction. And that's who Jesus came to be. So Nehemiah was essentially already foretelling about Christ, foreshadowing our need for a Savior when he's confronting them in Nehemiah 13. And next week on through Easter, we're going to be talking about that Savior who comes on our behalf. My prayer for us is that we will be men and women who stay the course as individuals 
and as a church in being disciples and in making disciples. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for examples like Nehemiah, who has gone before us in following you and making you known. Lord, we thank you for his example of strong leadership, of being willing to do whatever it takes to to stay the course and to finish strong. And I pray that we will follow that example in our lives and in our church to know Christ, to make him known, to be disciples, to make disciples, Lord. Lord, please help us to not be complacent, to not allow entropy in our own personal lives or in our church from wearying us of intentionally following Christ. But may we follow him with perseverance and with passion throughout our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.